Thank you, John. Well, long last, we're going to actually start this series on the book of Judges. So if you can turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 1 and verse 1, we'll do a bit of an introduction. It's, um, there's a lot going on here, so we'll do some introductory work today and then some, Lord willing, next week uh, as well. Uh, the book of Judges is a bit of a paradox in that it contains some of the best-known stories in the Bible. And uh, children, I bet if I asked you if you knew some of the characters from the book of Judges, you could tell me uh, maybe about Samson and Delilah and Gideon and maybe Deborah and some others. And so the book is very well known. And at the same time, uh, the book gives us a story of tremendous dysfunction. Uh, One commentator, and this is an evangelical commentator, summarizes the book as, quote, a story of despicable people doing deplorable things. Um, Elsewhere, uh, a commentator has said the name of the book is the book of Judges, but it could as just well be the book of failure. And others have described this book as being dark, twisted, brutal, earthy, puzzling, primitive, violent, and strange. Uh, And so we will have our work cut out for us as we approach this book. And we might ask, why uh, should we even study the book of Judges? And I think it's so instructive to us because it shows us what happens when the people of God do not follow God wholeheartedly. That there is an inevitable process of decay that sets in. And this book uh, lays that out for us. And this decay affects not only individual lives, but the church and the nation as a whole. And perhaps as we're on the eve of another election and there's debates over the future of the democracy and things like this, it's a good reminder uh, that this analyzes what really lies in store for people who turn away from following the God of the Bible. And then above all this, I think what we will see here that will be helpful to us is how Jesus Christ shines forth throughout this entire book, the crying need for a righteous leader, a righteous judge uh, to rule over us. And so with that little bit of introduction, let's read uh, the first chapter, verses 1 to 21, and then, uh, Lord willing, try to explain understand and discuss what God is saying to us here. So let's give attention now to God's word. Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight for them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. So Judah said to Simeon and his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory that we may fight against the Canaanites and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they killed 10,000 men at Bezek and they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Then Adonai Bezek flew and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adani Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table, as I have done. 
so God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword, and they set the city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains in the south and in the lowland. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjath Arba, and they killed Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kirjath Sefer. Then Caleb said, whoever attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it to, takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it, so he gave him his daughter Aksa as wife. Now it happened when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? So she said to him, Give me a blessing, since you've given me land in the south. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. And Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zaphath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Also, Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ascalon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said. Then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Uh, There will end the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to us as we endeavor uh, to understand it together this morning. You will find in the bulletin an insert that has uh, some cross-references that we'll be referring to, an outline of this message as well as a map that I will refer to. Well, with the death of Queen Elizabeth II, uh, her 70-year reign ended, and it was the end of an era. And uh, the Prime Minister, Liz Truss, the one who only served for a couple of weeks, who was serving at the time of Elizabeth's death, said as follows. She said, Elizabeth was the rock on which modern Britain was built. She came to the throne at just 25 in a country that was emerging from the shadow of war. She bequeaths a modern, dynamic nation that has grown and flourished under her reign. And her death came as quite a shock to people. Some have even speculated that the monarchy may not continue. And that looks like maybe that's a a little overblown. But some speculated the monarchy wouldn't be able to continue without her because for so many people, she was the English monarchy. And, And so this is what you call in the life of a nation a boundary event. These are these events that happen, and they happen in our lives as well. The birth of a child, the death of a loved one, where something happens and nothing will ever be the same again. And this is what we are looking at as we start this book of Judges. It begins with a boundary event. Joshua has died. He was the leader of the people, the hand-picked successor to Moses. 
And now what's going to happen to this nation of people after their two great leaders, Moses and Joshua, have both died? Without trying to ruin the story for you, let me just tell you here, it's not good what happens. It's, it's not good at all. And there is a downward spiral that this book lays out for us that happens in the wake of losing their king and their leader. And uh, what we see is a type of progressive degeneration uh, that is a warning to all of us. And so before we get into the, this cycle of despair and loss and failure, I want you to see in this first part of the book, we actually get a window on what could have been. What could have been if the people had trusted and obeyed God? God was prepared to do some amazing things through them. And we just get a little look at that before the cycle begins in which the nation goes down, 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 because in fact they don't love and obey God. And I think for our standpoint, it's a good question to ask ourselves. What is it that God wants to do with my life? We tend to underestimate what God can do with faithful people trying to obey him. What does God want to do with my life? Even as we will eventually be looking at this great warning of what happens when we don't follow God with our whole heart. So this is the main point as we look at this passage this morning. There are no limits to what God can do with faithful and obedient people empowered by their king, their true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And children, I've asked you, maybe you could draw a picture of some of the characters. We've heard a lot of names, a lot of places in that passage I read. Maybe something about Aksa or Othniel. They were a couple of people who did very well in that passage, and listen uh, for what we learn about them. So as we begin looking through the passage, I want you to note first that as a servant of God, you are called to seek, to, to seek his will and then to do his will in whatever he calls you to do. Now again, as I said, the book begins with the death of Joshua, one of these boundary events. And recognize how profound this would have been because this, this, uh, this group of people, about 70 people in Jacob's family, went down to Egypt. Many generations later, they are a group of about 2 million people. They become a nation. And the first leader they really have as a nation is Moses, whom God raises up to bring them out of their slavery in Egypt and bring them through the wilderness for 40 years and bring them right to the edge of the promised land. But remember, then Moses dies. And the book of Joshua, the book right before this one, begins with Moses' death. So then Joshua becomes the successor to Moses. And Joshua is the one who brings the people into the promised land and who fights all their battles for them. And they conquer the Canaanites in that land and clear out a space for them. I put some of these cross-references from the book of Joshua in your outline, kind of a summary of the fighting in Joshua eleven twenty-three. 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses, and Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to the divisions uh, by their tribes, and then the land rested from war. And that's really what we have dis- uh, pictured in the map uh, that I gave you in the outline, in the bulletin. This is the, the, the state of play after Joshua says to the people, here's your land, and it's partitioned up amongst the different tribes of Israel. 
I apologize. The city names, I think even if your eyesight is good, the city names are too small. I'll get, a, I'll get one with bigger city names next time. But you can see the layout of the tribes, and it encompasses the entire area from the Mediterranean Sea and even beyond the Jordan River. And this is what, uh, this is what Joshua had led them to. But recognize that the work wasn't finished. The work wasn't finished at the end of the book of Joshua. Uh, I preached a sermon series through the book of Joshua in 2012, if you're interested in going back and listening to that. It sets the table for what's happening here. Let me quote again from that book in Joshua 23, verses 3 to 5. You have seen all that the Lord God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. See, I have divided to you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off as far as the great sea westward. And the Lord your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight so you shall possess their land as the Lord your God promised you. So recognize that Joshua had led them through the major work of fighting, the book tells us, 31 different kings in that area. But there was much work left to be done. So yes, he had assigned them their different areas as shown in the map, but there were still a lot of inhabitants of the land in those areas. And it was going to be the job of each tribe to individually secure and dwell in their particular area. So he got the main work done to begin the process, but there was much that was needed to be done for all of the land to be subdued and to be settled. And part of the reason this was God's design is described for you in Exodus chapter 23, verses 29 and 30, where God said there, long before this happened, God said, I will drive them out from before you in, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beast of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. This was God's plan all along. This was going to be a gradual process. So break the back of the enemy. You can now move into this area, but it's going to take time to possess and to dwell in the land and to remove the remaining inhabitants. And the problem for the people as we start the book of Judges is they have that great work remaining, and yet they don't have a leader because Joshua has died. How are they going to approach this task without their great leader? Well, uh, it's encouraging the way this starts because they go and they ask God, the second half of verse 1. They ask the Lord, who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites and to fight them? So they actually inquire of the Lord, God, what do you want us to do? How do you want us to proceed? And we don't know exactly how they get the answer. But verse 2 tells us that the Lord answers them, whether it's through a prophet or through the Urim and Thummim, this uh, means they had by which they could inquire of God's will. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. So there is a clear direction there. And then what happens? Well, verse 3, Judah says to Simeon, his brother, again, these these are tribes of people. It's not just one and two people says to Simeon, his brother, come up with me to my allotted territory that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you to your allotted territory. So Judah and Simeon were two of uh, Leah's six children, Leah the wife of Jacob, and so they were brothers in that sense. They had the same mother as well as the same father. And if you look on your map, 
you'll see that the territory of Simeon was actually contained within the territory of Judah. So this made sense that they would work together to go and to try to clear out and to possess their land there that's in the south of the promised land. Our family recently got a letter uh, from the IRS, and that's never good. But this time, uh, incredibly, there was an unexpected check in the letter, uh, a rebate that we supposedly uh, deserved, uh, which my wife, who does our taxes, said right away, uh, this is a mistake. Now, I have to say, uh, the motivation to call the IRS is low, uh, because obviously this mistake is in our favor, and also the trauma of just being on the phone forever trying to get through. But you know there are these certain situations when we really don't want to ask. Like We'd rather just not ask. You know, is this a mistake? Uh, let's just not ask because we're afraid of the answer we might get. Now, perhaps some of you children have done that before, where you know, I really should ask mom or dad before I go do this, but I'm, I'm kind of afraid of the answer I might get. So I'll just go ahead and do it anyway, and then we can talk about it later. Not a good idea. Not a good idea, but a common temptation for sure. And this is striking because here we have people that could have very easily said, you know, we've been at war. We've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. We saw the generation above us die off. We've been at war for years. We're exhausted with all this fighting. The last thing we want to do is more fighting. Joshua's dead. Let's just let bygones be bygones and let this alone. But they don't do that. They actually go and they inquire of God, what do you want us to do? And when God says, I want you to fight some more, they do it. They obey and they follow the Lord. And I think this is very instructive to us because this is what it means to be a servant of God, to actually inquire of the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do, even if it's something hard, and then by his grace to do what you sense he is leading you to do. This is the kind of radical discipleship that Jesus calls for. We talked about this last week when Jesus said we have to die to ourselves and live to him. So as a servant of God, you are to seek his will, genuinely seek his will, and then you are to do what God calls you to do. But secondly, we see here how God works through the faithful obedience of his people. So uh, the, the text tells us Judah promptly obeys in verse four. Then Judah went up and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. They killed 10,000 men at Bezek. They, they conquered this little uh, local dictator tyrant, Adonai Bezek. Uh, literally, that is Lord Lightning, uh, is what Bezek means. So Lord Lightning was a powerful king. He had, uh, as he said, conquered 70 other kings. And we don't know if that's hyperbole, but the point is he was a powerful king. It says in verse 8 that they fought against Jerusalem, the mountain, for mountain fortress, and they took it. Uh, then in verse 10, uh, they fought against Debir, and they took it. And in verse 20, uh, they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said. So uh, there's a victory there. And so these are all places in the south, down in the territory of Judah. And they're making great progress. In verse 17, it tells us they went against the city of Zareph. 
and they took it. In fact, it says that they utterly destroyed it. And uh, we pause here to talk about something that causes people a tremendous amount of angst, and it, and, it's, and it is a legitimate question. How can God condone this kind of violence in the Scripture? This word uh, that they utterly destroyed it is the Hebrew word harem, uh, harem, which means uh, uh, that, that the people are under the ban or that they're totally devoted to God. It's the same word that's used for the whole burnt offering in the sacrifice. And this is what God had told them to do, that they were to go into the land and that they were to get rid of all of the pagans who were in the land. And this, this does cause a lot of uh, questions in our minds. And in fact, a lot of people outside the church use this as an argument for why you can't trust the Bible, right? because it's saying to do things like this. I put in your outline a quote from Ralph Davis, which I think is, is pretty appropriate if only the Canaanites could know how much emotional support they receive from modern Western readers, right? That everybody is a fan of the Canaanites, how the Canaanites being mistreated like this. But we actually get a bit of an answer on this from one of the Canaanites himself, because this man, Adonai Bezek, who was this little tyrant who had conquered many other kings and cut off their thumbs and big toes, rendering them unable to fight, you understand. He has the same thing done to him, and what does he say about it? He says, he says, that, uh, he says that God has done so, God has repaid me for what I have done. He, even he understands that what's going on is not, uh, it's not vengeance, it's not payback, it's justice, it's justice. And from the beginning, this was God's idea for this conquest. I put an extended quotation in your outline from Deuteronomy chapter 9. And it helps you to understand Israel was a tool in the hand of God for God to execute his justice on these wicked people. And he says to them, do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. It is because of the wickedness of these, it is, it is, sorry, it is not because of the righteous, your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you. And that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. You have to get, this is behind all of this, is God is bringing justice to a violent people who, who were, were um, opposed to him and everything that he stood for. And he was using the nation of Israel in this way. And in some ways, this was an unpleasant work. It was not something they relished at all. Uh, and they were called to do this. And, and this passage tells us when they obeyed, when they did what God told them, God blessed them for it. God bless them. So he says in verse 2, I have delivered the land into Judah's hand. Or in verse 4, the Lord delivered them. Or in verse 19, so the Lord was with Judah and they drove them out. It is not their work. It is God's work. He is using them as an instrument in his hand. Some families in our congregation who were founding families back 
over 200 years ago, uh, became convinced that God was calling them to defy the laws of the state of Indiana and of the nation and the sentiments of their neighbors here in Bloomington and to risk their livelihoods, their homes, their personal safety to try to help escaped slaves get north to freedom, serving on the Underground Railroad. And God used their obedience to him, their willingness to do hard things, to save many individuals and families and and to provide an incredible blessing. That ministry was done in the name of Christ. But do you realize at the time they were doing it, at the time that they were helping escape slaves right through this county right here, that was not a popular thing to do. They were vilified by the people in the community. They were threatened by the people in the community. They weren't doing that thinking, well, 170 years later, they'll be writing stories about us and they'll be bragging about us on the city's webpage. That wasn't what was going on then. They were doing something very unpopular because they were convinced God was calling them to do it. And God blessed their efforts to do that. And this is an important reminder to us. We are sometimes asked to do difficult things. But God blesses you when you obey, when you do what he's calling you to do. God blesses it. Last week at the annual Walk for Life, uh, two of the children of our congregation were the two top earners in terms of donations for the Hannah House, the local crisis pregnancy center. And everyone uh, has a role to play. Now, they were, they, I know, they were taking a lot of your money. We, I get that. But they organized it. They asked for it. They did the walking. It, what an amazing thing, right? Even children who obey what God is calling them to do. God blesses that. God uses that. And that's an important reminder. This is what could have been for these people if they would have followed God. But they didn't. Thirdly, we see that God also blesses your sanctified initiative. So verses 12 to 15 of our text are also found in the book of Joshua in their entirety, in Joshua chapter 15. So this must be an important account And it talks about Caleb in verse 12. Whoever attacked, Caleb said, whoever attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it to him, I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. Now, children, do you remember who Caleb is? Caleb was one of the two spies that went into the promised land along with Joshua who came back and gave a good report and said, yes, it's a great land, we can do this. But you remember the the congregation of people, they threw stones at Joshua and Caleb, and they said, no, we're going back to Egypt. And that's why God consigned that whole generation to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. But he promised Joshua and Caleb, the faithful spies, would get to go into the land. So here is Caleb now. He's, he's late in his life, but he's still strong, and he still wants to fight. And notice he needs help uh, taking this city of Debir. Caleb's able to conquer Hebron, and defeats three giants. Those names of those people are giants in, in, in Hebron. Um, but he now needs help. And so he decides, what better way to get help than to offer my daughter Aksa as a prize? 
Now, we can quibble about whether that's a good way for a father to help his daughter find a spouse. I mean, you could argue that at least he was going for someone with some good qualities, um, but this is what he does. And so notice here, Othniel appears to be Caleb's nephew, takes uh, this challenge on. And so he goes and he takes the city of Debir. Probably he leads a force that fights. And so now uh, Othniel gets Aksa as his wife. And uh, it's a little confusing in the translation I read what's going on there. But what seems to happen is that, as is often the case, the father of the bride is giving uh, gifts. The bride price has been paid conquering this city. And now he offers a bride price, and it seems like Aksa are, are uh, gifts to his wife, or his daughter and, and her husband, that uh, his daughter Aksa comes and says specifically, I want this particular field, and then now that you've given me this field, you know, it's in the south, it's kind of dry there, I need a couple of string, streams of water, springs of water, a water source there to water my field. And so he, she asks Caleb for that as well. What do you wish, he says in verse 15, give me a blessing since you've given me land in the south, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. She gets what she needs. And what, what you are seeing here is what happens when people who seek to honor God take initiative. They take initiative to do things in their lives. They're not paralyzed by analysis they're not sitting around waiting for someone else to do it. They actually take initiative. Caleb makes a bold offer. I need to get help taking the city. He makes a bold offer. He gets help. Othniel takes the challenge. He gets a wonderful wife, a wife who's also bold enough to go ask her father, hey, give us the land and give us the springs of water for it. And this is very important because throughout this book, we're going to see the degradation not only of the male leaders, but also of the females. Because here we have a strong woman who knows her business, asking for things in faith. Think about how far we go till we get to Delilah uh, towards the end of the book. We go a long way down. And this again is what could have been. A people taking initiative, acting. And in 2018, there was an American missionary, a young man of 27, who had it in his mind that he was going to go and evangelize an island of isolated, primitive people off the coast of India. And uh, so he, he managed to bribe some fishermen to take him to the island. He went to the island where he was promptly killed, shot with arrows, and died. Now, we commend his spirit... But at the same time, we question the wisdom of doing this, this way. Uh, in contrast, uh, in the early 2000s, we had a man in our denomination named Vince Ward who got a heart for the people of South Sudan. And Vince uh, didn't just show up in South Sudan one day. In fact, it wasn't South Sudan. The, 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 the nation divided uh, since that time. But he, he contacted our global mission board. He got support. He, got, he recruited other team members. Um, he had prayer support. He had financial support. Uh, they went into South Sudan with a clear vision and a plan that they would build an indigenous church that could sustain itself. 
And here we are now over 10, 15 years later, and there are hundreds of converts, there are multiple congregations, uh, there is a school, there is a radio ministry, there is a, 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 a program for training pastors. All of this has happened from the initiative taken by just a couple of people. And, and it's a fascinating story. But recognize what God does with sanctified boldness. He, he uses it. And this doesn't have to be something as great as starting a, a mission work in a foreign country. I was talking to a young couple who's new uh, at the RP Church in Greenwood. And they said, you know, we looked around and we, and we realized there's no ministry here for uh, young couples or single people without children. So we're going to start a group without children. Well, they got, they got flack for that right away. I'm sorry. You know, uh, we can't do everything. We, we, we just, we chose this particular niche. We started the ministry and now it's up and running and it's going well. This is what initiative does. God blesses us when we look around and we see what uh, we might be able to do. And then we act and we follow through. And that's what we see here in this book. Well, we also see that God uses your faithful obedience to draw outsiders into the church. So in verse 16, there's this little note about Moses, the Kenite. Now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and they dwelt among the people. So this is an interesting sidebar. A Kenite could be translated smiths. So we don't know if this people were a people that could work with metal. Uh, they were a wandering people. These are the people of Moses' father-in-law. I think I misspoke earlier. Moses' father-in-law. And you can read about this man. He's called Jethro in the book of Exodus. He's called the priest of Midian. But he comes out there to help Moses as he's leading the people. He's also called Ruel. Ruel means friend of God in Numbers chapter 10. And I put Numbers 10 in your outline. And there it says, Now Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will treat you well, for the Lord has promised good things to Israel. And he said to him, I will not go, but I will depart to my own land and to my relatives. So Moses said, please do not leave inasmuch as you know how we are to camp in the wilderness and you can be our eyes. And it shall be, if you go with us, indeed it shall be, that whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same we will do to you. And isn't this fascinating that as Moses was able to convince his father-in-law's family to stay with the people of God, now here we have, after the conquest, a group, a family group of these people incorporating themselves into Judah and becoming a part of the people of God. And this is why verse 16 is actually telling you something really important. God is bringing in outsiders into the people of God as full-fledged members. Amy and I had our first experience uh, worshiping in a Reformed Presbyterian church back in the summer of 1990. And uh, we'd never been to an RP church, so we were experiencing what some of you visiting with us today were experiencing uh, just a little while ago, we're singing psalms of the Bible with no musical accompaniment. That, that takes a little bit to get used to. What's going on here? Um, 
And, and you know, that wasn't the thing that, uh, that really sold us on the church. What sold us on the church was that the pastor and his wife had us to dinner after the service. And we sat down at the table with his children and with the, some other guests. And after the meal, we did what was called family worship. Never heard of it. Never seen it done before. But there we were, singing praise to God, reading the scripture together, and praying. And I thought to myself, I don't know anything about uh, their theology or anything else, but I know this. They take their faith seriously. And it's not just something for Sundays. They're committed, body and soul, to serving God as a family. And that was attractive. And so long before we figured out all the theological nuances and other things, we knew we wanted to be a part of a group like that. And and that's something that's going on here, is there's a profound impact that these people, these Kenites, they're not Jews at all, but by being around the people of God, they've seen how the people of God have lived, they've seen how God has blessed them, and they want to be a part of it. They want to be a part of it. And this is a great encouragement to you and me because if you're faithfully serving the Lord and your life has to be open, you have to be open enough to have others from the outside see how you're living. God wants to use that. God really wants to use that. This is is a great argument for why we try to get people into our homes, why we do an ESL class, why we think about how I interact with my coworkers when I'm at work. all of these kinds of things. Our MOPS group is another great example. I was talking to Greg Mullen in the hospital yesterday. His his main concern in the hospital is not his health, but that uh, God would help him to be a faithful witness while he's in there, talking to one of the nurses about Jesus. What a wonderful example. As we live openly, God wants to use that. God does amazing things through that. God uses faithful obedience, doesn't have to be complicated, to draw outsiders into the church. And finally, we see here that there are no limits to what God can do through your true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things we need to get a handle on as we start this study is the perspective of the author of the book. Yes, God is the divine author. But what's the perspective of the human author? He clearly favors the tribe of Judah over the tribe of Benjamin. Because Judah conquers Jerusalem. And then what do we have in this last verse we read? But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Jerusalem, that mountain city, is right on the border. The northern part, the northern border of Judah, the southern border of Benjamin. So it's right in between. And apparently the soldiers from Judah take the city. They leave it for the people of Benjamin. The people of Benjamin don't possess it. Now, why does the author care that we understand that the tribe of Judah is superior to the tribe of Benjamin? Because the first king, Saul, came from Benjamin. And so the writer's writing after this point, and he's making an argument why the, the leader, the king from Judah, is the king that we need And we'll see this right throughout the book. Where does all the trauma, if you've read this book before, the the disgusting things that happened in the last few 
chapters, that happens at Gibeah, Saul's hometown. So that's part of what's going on in the author's mind. But there's also a perspective that may be even more distant than that. And I put in the outline, Judges 18, verse 30. Then the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan. Now look at this last part, until the day of the captivity of the land. And this suggests that at least there was an editor at some point all the way back to the time of the exile who's reflecting on what's going on. And and if that's true, it's very interesting because in the time of the exile, there was no king. And he's again going back to this situation that having no king is not good. Look at the last verse of the book of Judges, Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is a condemnation. That is not a good thing. We think everyone doing his own thing is good. That's not good. And this whole book is going to show you why that is not good. So recognize right from the beginning of this book, the author is elevating the tribe of Judah. You understand it's Judah who goes up first. It's Judah who inquires of the Lord. It's Judah who obeys. It's Judah who conquers. It's people from Judah who show initiative in this whole process. Up until this time, the major tribe has been the sons of Joseph, the one who took them all down to Egypt. Now the focus is on Judah. And why is that? Well, it's not because the tribe of Judah is perfect. Look at verse 19. They drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. Sounds like a a good excuse, right? They couldn't beat them because of the chariots of iron, except the problem is, God never put caveats into any of his commands to them. God never said, you'll be able to push them out except for the ones with chariots. And what this is revealing is even the people of Judah were not perfect, did not have the faith that they needed to obey. And so what this points to is the perfect king coming from the tribe of Judah, the one who inquires of the Lord, the one who willingly comes into the world to deliver God's people, the one who fights even to the point of giving up his own life on the cross, the one who brings in outsiders, the one who takes the initiative to deliver God's people. This is about Jesus Christ. And so as we begin and we start this ugly spiral, which we're going to be looking at over the coming weeks, we will be reminded again and again, this is a cry for help And it is a cry for the king from Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one we all need. David Dorsey says in his commentary, this book's only true hero is Israel's God, Yahweh, who continued to graciously help Israel despite its repeated unfaithfulness. And Yahweh's help comes in the person of that divine king, the Lord Jesus Christ. So recognize there are no limits to what God will do with faithful people who obey, but the Lord Jesus Christ is the one in whom we find that faithfulness and and in whom we receive the blessings of God. Well, let's ask God to help us as we start this study together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to begin this study 
And uh, we confess, uh, it's, it's challenging already. There's lots of place names and people's names and seems like uh, things going uh, here and there and it's hard to follow. But Lord, we see in these first verses what could have been, what you, what you are able to do through people who follow you, who trust you and are willing to do hard things. And we pray, Lord, you would help us to be people like that. Lord, we recognize that no person can do what needs to be done. Only the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect king who comes from the tribe of Judah. He's the only one. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust in him and that in Christ you would give us strength to be people, uh, men and women and boys and girls who are willing uh, to seek your, your will and then to obey. Uh, people who are willing to take initiative to follow you. Lord, give us grace and strength that we might see you work among us, that we might see outsiders coming in uh, through our witness and ministry. And we pray all of this would be for the glory of your name, for we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. And now let's sing back our praise to the Lord uh, from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 uh, speaks about the Messiah as uh, the Son of God and at the same time this conquering um, conquering warrior and we praise him that he's he's conquered us uh, by bringing us to faith in Christ and uh, this speaks about having willing servants who follow him and uh, that is a great reminder that we can accomplish uh, great things for the Lord as we simply follow him and trust him so we'll sing 110a and then please remain standing for the benediction let's stand to sing